Great. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Christology. We are in the second chapter, and we're going to be doing a little bit of skipping around, though maybe not as much as I had anticipated. So, first chapter, we looked at Christology in the post-Enlightenment era, which of course took us back to some of the roots of the historical controversies uh, regarding Christology. And then here in chapter 2, we're looking at the past and present Christological controversies. So there is some significant overlap uh, or redundancy. I suspect the advantage to this, at least for us, is that in going over these terms and concepts, uh, yet again, we're deepening our knowledge, we're reinforcing that knowledge, and then we're slowly expanding it. So that's what we're up to in these first two chapters. If we get a little ways into chapter 3, um, that wouldn't hurt my feelings, so maybe we'll have that as our goal today. On page 12, we left off last week with Peter's confession that um, you know, he, says to, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus explains to him that this confession um, does not come from flesh and blood. It does not come from below, but from above, namely from the Father. And so only, only revelation, only heavenly divine revelation shows us that Christ is in fact not only true man, but also true God uh, in one person. So we left off with those reflections from Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> and then we'll simply drop down to the bottom of page 12 and look at that uh, last paragraph there where Scare writes, the task of explaining the relationship of the two natures in Christ has remained at the center of Christology from the days of the apostles up to the Reformation. The debates which began in the first century continued into the second. Docetism, a prominent Gnostic heresy, denied the humanity of Christ by denying that an actual incarnation took place. Okay, so docetism is an early heresy that denies the humanity. Now, a little bit different than denying that the historical person, Jesus, never, you know, that he never really existed, which is sort of the modern uh, liberal argument is either Jesus never really existed, he's entirely mythological, or he's mostly mythological. This is different. This is, there's no, there's no contradiction to the fact that he existed. In fact, um, he existed quite concretely, but in this way, that um, he only appeared to be man. He was true God, but because it is impossible for God to truly be en encompassed, you know, in Christ, for the fullness of the deity to dwell bodily, because that's philosophically impossible, reasons a docetist, uh, he must have only had the appearance of being true man. So here's a denial of the true humanity in docetism very early, and we'll talk more about Gnosticism in just a minute. <clears throat> Next, Scare introduces Ebionism, which Ebionism denied the deity of Christ and regarded him as a prophet who was simply the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, Ebionism is alive and well in Islam, for example, or any other tradition where Jesus is thought to be a, a man, maybe even an excellent man or a great teacher, but 
certainly not divine, certainly not God in human flesh. That's Ebionism. So you can see two sides of the coin here. Uh, on the one hand, denial of the humanity and docetism, so that when Jesus is suffering on the cross, he only appears to be suffering, he isn't really suffering. Or Ebionism, which denies the, the uh, deity of Christ such that he's just a man and just a prophet. And, um, you know, for example, in Islam, he isn't even on the cross uh, is, is frequently how that's dealt with there because uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be worthy of his dignity or something like that. Um, Islam has an inability to understand anything of humility, uh, divine humility. So, docetism and ebionism, um, two early heresies. Now, Scare continues, gives us a little fuller definition of docetism here. Docetism is a term which comes from the Greek verb dokeo, which in the intransitive means to seem. So, in other words, he only seems like he's a man, but he's not. Scare continues, these Gnostics taught that Jesus only seemed to be a real man, but actually was not. Francis Pieper, he's the standard dogmatician in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, early 20th century. Pieper's Dogmatics is a three-volume set uh, and is, again, is sort of the dogmatic standard, so he is just quoted here. Francis Pieper notes, Docetism as Gnosticism in general held that matter is evil in itself and made of Christ's humanity a mere phantasma, end quote. So, a pretty simple way to understand Gnosticism. Gnosticism is that, you know, the, the earthly, material, physical stuff is bad. You can see how Gnosticism has encroached uh, and, and really infiltrated uh, Christianity with this idea that uh, I can't wait to be free from this body. That's Gnosticism. Um, I can't wait to be free from this body of sin so that I can be raised in a physical body. That's Christianity, a, a physical body made perfect so that um, what is corrupt puts on incorruptibility. So Gnosticism has a hatred for what's material, um, including the body, including what it means to be fully human. And it continues to be one of the great uh, heresies of our day. I mean, really, really, you can trace all the all the major sins of our day to Gnosticism. I mean, you can think of like all the gender bending, transgender confusion. That whole nexus of stuff is what it's denial of the flesh. I am not what my flesh is. I am this other thing. Uh, so it's a denial and hatred of the flesh. So is abortion, of course, more obviously, euthanasia as well. It's a hatred of flesh. It's a hatred of form. Um, it's a desire to be free from all of that. It ties into the New Age movement, um, though I don't know how popular that is anymore. Uh, but just Gnosticism in general is probably, in many respects, at least viewed from this angle, the prevalent religion in America. <clears throat> Okay, so Scare continues, an early form of this heresy, now again we're talking about docetism as a subset of Gnosticism, an early form of this heresy is mentioned in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, 
where some in the church were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And you remember that. Uh, this, is, um, this is, of course, a, a docetic teaching or impulse. Scare continues, Gnosticism with its docetic view of Christ was characteristic of the Hellenistic communities which heavily influenced by Platonism held material things of the world in low esteem. For them, the notion that God could or even would assume human flesh was offensive and incomprehensible. Then the denial of the resurrection at Corinth may have been the result of such philosophical influences. So if you go and look at the latter chapters of 1 Corinthians, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's making this, the, all of these arguments about the resurrection of our bodies. The point is that in that, in that community, in that church in Corinth, these things were being denied, um, the resurrection of our bodies, the goodness of our bodies, etc. So that's, what's, uh, that's what Scare's referencing here. The denial of the resurrection at Corinth may have been the result of such philosophical influences. Both heresies were present in embryonic form in the first century and had to be addressed by the apostles. So there really was no golden age in the church. There really was no golden age in Christology. Uh, there were errors from the very beginning, and those errors have their development. And parallel to that, the truth in contradicting to those errors has the appearance of a development, but it's not really a development. It's simply a defense against the attacks uh, as the attacks themselves develop. So you have this, uh, this going on as early as the first century, and that's scarce point. Now, next paragraph, we continue on with, you know, again, this broad linear sketch of, of history and Christological controversies. He writes, even when the divine and human natures of Jesus were confessed, their relationship to each other continued to be problematic for the church well into the 8th century. The seven ecumenical church councils from Nicaea in 325 AD until the one held in 787 AD, again in Nicaea, address the Christological heresies as they appeared in various forms. Origen, and you can see his dates there, uh, primarily a third century church father, taught that Jesus and the Holy Spirit each had an eternal divine nature, but understood the divinity of the Son and Spirit as inferior to the divinity of the Father. This theory, known as subordinationalism, was really a form of tritheism in that the, de the deity of the Son and the Spirit was seen as inferior and thereby different from that of the Father. All right, and so here you can see how uh, Christology and one's understanding of the, of the natures and person of Christ very frequently then directly lead into one's understanding of the Trinity. So Origen teaches subordinationalism, which is to say that the Son and the Spirit are subordinate to, uh, lower than the Father. And, and while they're divine, they're lower than the Father. And yet that divinity, in their divinity, they are lower. And so then you have two divinities. You have one divinity that is higher than another divinity. And then if you end up with three different divinities, you end up with a tritheism. And so you can see then Scare making that point. 
Subordinationalism was a, uh, was, was a very early heresy, as you can see, and prevalent enough uh, and taught by Origen. Um, what else should we say about this? Well, maybe that's sufficient. Yeah, maybe that's sufficient. It does show the connection, again, between the Trinity and Christology and, and one's understanding of each. Sub subordinationalism, um, you, want to, you want to be, you want to be um, there's a really helpful category in thinking about these things, and one is to talk about the Trinity um, in, in, ontological, in an ontological way, and another way is to talk about the Trinity in terms of an economy or an economic way. And here we don't mean anything to do with money. We just mean like more of a systematic way or a, or a, a way in which the, the Trinity works or, con, or conducts itself in terms of um, how it interfaces and interacts with humanity. That, so the, onto, the tr Trinity considered ontologically, we want to confess that there's one God in three persons. And we want to confess that these three persons are co-equal, co-eternal. You can, you can hear some of that language, um, and it's likely familiar to you from the Athanasian Creed, for example. Okay, yes? Yeah, there's a ways off topic. <laughs> I, you know, as a. I don't believe it does. I don't believe it does. I'm willing to be be corrected uh, on that. If if someone knows better than I, if someone knows the Eastern Orthodox position better than I, I'm I'm more than willing to be. Corrected, but I don't, no, I don't think it does have anything to do with subordinationalism. I, I think that the Eastern Orthodox would certainly confess the the, the co-equality of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. Um, it would be more in the sphere of uh, considering the Trinity not in terms of ontology, but in terms uh, in terms of economy. So, in terms of economy, what do we mean? Well, we mean that in the in the relationship that is revealed between the triune uh, you know, persons of, of the one God, you have, you have like this, for example. The Son prays to the Father, and the Son worships the Father. But where in Scripture do you find the Father praying to the Son or the Father worshiping the Son? You see, you don't have that. Um, the Father sends the Son. And in this sense, too, the Son will say, the Father is greater than I. We're talking about not the ontology of the Trinity. We're not talking about the, the being, the essential being of the Trinity. We're talking about how the Trinity is functioning. And when, when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, how the Trinity is functioning via Jesus' mission, subordinate to the Father, doing the will of his Father, uh, taking on human flesh as one born under the law of God, worshiping God, um, entrusting himself to God, committing his spirit into the hands of God. This is all referring to the, the economy or the economic relationship and sphere. So to keep these things, these two categories straight, uh, will keep you from blurring them together, and in blurring them together, you'll become a subordinationalist. So that's, uh, that's to be avoided. 
All right, so subordinationalism, I, this is the take-home point. Subordinationalism was one of those early heresies, and it comes from, you know, as you can see, Origen's a guy who's trying to be faithful um, and, try, and just not, not having, not utilizing that distinction between ontology and economy. All right, let's continue with Scare in the middle of that paragraph where he writes, in the early 4th century, Arius instigated the most important Christological controversy in the ancient church. So here's the 4th century, Arius. Arius proposed a radical form of subordinationism by denying the Son's eternal existence. I don't know if Scare quotes it here or not, but the catchphrase is, there was a time when Christ was not. And if there's any Christology or any understanding or comprehension of the Trinity in which you could say there was a time when Christ was not, then you're an Arian. And definitionally, you're a subordinationist because um, you have subordinated the Son to the Father. The Father is, in that, in that sense, then the only everlasting God, and the Son comes after. Even if he's fully God, he comes after and so now he's subordinate to the Father, at least in terms of causality. And that's, uh, so that's, um, that's a problem. That's Arianism. And as Scare says, uh, this is um, you know, probably the most important Christological controversy in the ancient church. Again, Arianism because it touches, is the most important because it touches on one's understanding of the Trinity. Once again, and so if you, you know, if your Christology is such that you lose not only the proper understanding of the person of Christ, but then the proper understanding of the Trinity, you've lost the revelation of God. You've, you've denied God and rejected God, and you've, you've become a heretic. You've, you've made an idol, and you're worshiping that idol and leading others astray. So that's precisely the problem. And Arius' position is, is sort of right between the Trinity and Christ, the person of Christ. So he performed, perf, uh, excuse me, proposed a radical form of subordinationism by denying the Son's eternal existence. Arius taught that the Son did not exist by necessity, but only by the will of the Father. Arius perfectly prefigured the later heresy of Apollinarianism by denying that Jesus had a human soul. Well, we'll have time to get into Apollinarianism a little bit later, but very briefly, Apollinarianism is uh, this heresy where, I, this is the way I think of it, it's probably in, as easy as any way. Think of a, think of a full human being, um, maybe even yourself if you like, and then think of the personality or the, or the soul taken out, and then... The, and then that being replaced by the, by the logos, by the Word of God. So the, the Word comes in and takes place of that personality or soul of the man. What's the problem? You no longer have true man. You have that, that axiom so popular with the church fathers that um, what is not assumed is not redeemed. So that is, if, you know, whatever Christ does not assume, he does not redeem. If, he, if, he is, if, you take a, if you take a person but remove the soul or the personality, this is dumb, but let's just say that that's, you, now you've got 90% of a person, okay? When the Logos comes in and fills that gap, 
he only assumes 90% of a person. He only redeems 90% of a person. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. And so it needs to be the true man, the true human nature needs to be upheld. And Apollinarianism is a rejection of that. And Scare just makes a connection here between Arianism uh, and Apollinarianism. So, again, Arius perfectly prefigured the later heresy of Apollinarianism by denying that Jesus had a human soul. This function in the incarnate person was, he alleged, discharged by the Logos. It is not possible to equate, pre to equate precisely present-day Unitarianism with the teachings of Arius but both Unitarians and Arianism believe that divinity, strictly speaking, can only be an essential quality of the Father. And in that respect, maybe they differ from Mormons, but Mormons are Arians too, in that they, they say that there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not God. He became God, and so um, Mormonism is certainly a modern-day form of Arianism. Scare continues, in practice, the divinity of both the Son and the Spirit is denied. Um, this is with Unitarianism, I think. Yes. Uh, the Nicene Creed was a careful response to Arian Christology. It described the divinity of the Son as being homoousius with the divinity of the Father. And again, I think we covered this back in the very first session here in Christology where we looked at the difference between homoousius and homoousius. Is he of similar substance to the Father? That's homoi. Or is he of the same substance? That's homoousius. He is homoousius um, as, the, as we confess in the Nicene Creed. And that puts to bed then the Arian controversy, at least formally, of course, not informally. But um, yeah, so the Nicene Creed described the divinity of the Son as being homoousius with the divinity of the Father. That is, of the same essence or substance. <clears throat> the Council of Nicaea rejected Arius' assertion that the Son was a created being when it said that Christ was begotten, not made. Right, so you remember that line out of the Nicene Creed, um, that the Son is begotten, not made. Arius says, no, he's made. There is a time when he was not, and so thus he's created or made. Against this we confess that he is not, he's neither created nor made, but he is begotten. And that begottenness, I mean, it's very difficult to wrap your head around. You can't really wrap your head around God. If you could, he'd no longer be God. And so you simply have to go by, by revelation. You just have to, I mean, you have a, you have a in God you have a, a being that is infinite and that is incomprehensible. Just in and of himself, we cannot comprehend him. And so when he reveals himself to us, the very wisest thing we can do is in humility confess back what he has revealed. And so what he has revealed to us, of course, is that the, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet we have not three gods, but one God. And then in having this one God who is eternal, then we can talk about the relationship between those persons in eternity. And there's the language of begottenness. So um, Augustine I, somewhere uses, I've lost track of where this is, but Augustine somewhere uh, teaches you, know, you to think of it like this. You can think of like the trunk of a tree, 
that's the father, and then a branch that's grown out from the trunk of that tree, and, and that's the son. He's generated by the father. The, the um, branch is generated by the trunk. But now, now picture that, that, that tree trunk and that branch. Um, picture them having existed for all eternity. Okay, so, so that there's not a generation in time. There's not ever a time where the branch was not. Okay, they've existed for all eternity, but what we're expressing there is a relationship that the Father um, generates the Son, that the, that the Son has his begottenness of the Father. Okay? And that simply comes to us from Scripture, and it's the self-revelation of God, so we confess it back, even though our minds kind of reel to grasp that. But that's what we mean in saying that Christ was begotten, not made. It is a wholly and entirely unique sonship or begottenness that the Son of God has in relation to the Father. Okay, let's go a little further with Scare on page 14, top uh, new paragraph. After Arius' beliefs were officially condemned, there arose two more heresies, each an attempt by theologians to explain the relationship of the two natures in Christ. Now, these are going to be familiar to you because we've gone through these before, so I'll just go quickly um, back in the very first session if you need a refresher. Nestorius, a fierce anti-Arian, so divided and separated the two natures in Christ that he was accused of teaching that there are actually two persons in Christ, one human and the other divine. One side note to take from this is look at, look at Nestorius. He is a fierce anti-Arian, and sometimes this is, well, I don't know, you see this over and over as you study theology and the history of theology, you see this pattern, that there's an error, and there's a reaction to that error that is so extreme and radical that it ends up just becoming the opposite error. And that's precisely on display here as Nestorius is so anti-Arian that he strays from the middle, the, the orthodoxy of giving right glory to God, and strays off into his own error, such that his Christology is liable to the charge that he is presenting Christ as uh, two persons. Um, you can think of two boards glued together um, one true man and one true God. That's, uh, that's a fair picture of Nestorianism. Scare continues, After Nestorius, Eutyches so confused and mixed the distinction between the two natures. Now, by the way, as an aside, who is Eutyches reacting against? Nestorius. So again, this pattern holds. You've got an error in Nestorius, and so in rejecting Nestorianism, Eutyches goes so zealously that he goes into the opposite error of Nestorius. So Eutyches so confused and mixed, you know, Nestorius has the two boards glued together, they're, they're together and yet they're completely separate and they're never going to be uh, one. And Eutyches says, no, they need to be one in such a way that he confuses and mixes them together. Uh, confused and mixed the distinction between the two natures in Christ that he taught there was in Christ only a divine nature. And see, that's exactly what happens. When you mix the two natures together, you're going to end up with something that is only divine, something that is only human, or something that is neither of the two. Those are your options. So that's uh, Eutychianism. 
um, a, re a reaction to Nestorianism. Scare continues, Nestorianism was the subject of the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, and you can tell that Scare is loosely tracking us along a chronology here, along a timeline, so that we can see the development of different major Christological errors and controversies. So Nestorianism, 431 AD, and Eutychianism was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. It was at the Council of Chalcedon that the Christology of the Church was encapsulated in a form which was to remain the standard of the faith until the Enlightenment. And again, as we looked at chapter 1, you've already seen this, but at the Enlightenment, everything changes. It's not really that any of these heresies go away. As we've seen and will see, these heresies continue to plague us. It's just that the, at the time of the Enlightenment, the, these cease to be the major heresy, the major problem. As we already have seen from Scare, the major heresy, the major problem is a sort of skepticism toward the person of Christ at all. And this problem with doing theology from below in such a way that you preempt yourself from any revelation from above. All right, so the Enlightenment is one of these major events in the life of theology where after it, everything changes, and certainly not for the better. Scare continues, the Council of Chalcedon erected four walls, so to speak, to protect the mystery of the two natures in Christ. By means of four terms, it rejected the errors of Nestorianism and Eutychianism. Okay, and these aren't all that well-known. We'll go through it anyway, but whereas homoousius is kind of a word you might want to commit to memory and um, throw around at a cocktail party to impress your friends, uh, and, and I would highly recommend that, these words, not so much, much lesser known. All right, against Nestorius, the council asserted that the two natures in Christ exist. Let me see if I can do this. Adi eratos, that is indivisibly, and acharistos, inseparably. So again, not to lose the force for the trees, against Nestorius, the two natures exist indivisibly. You can't divide the two natures, otherwise you divide the person. Okay, you can make a distinction, but you can't divide them. And then acharistos, inseparably. So, I mean, you might think about that when, it, when you've been taught by pious, well-meaning teachers and Bible study, well, this is just his human nature, or this is just according to his human nature, or that kind of thing. While there may be some place for that, it's much less than we would think, because again, the scriptures are presenting to us Christ, the whole Christ. So... We want to make sure that we're um, talking about the two natures in such a way that they exist indivisibly and also inseparably. All right, that's against Nestorius. Now, directed against Eutyches was the assertion that in Christ the two natures exist asugutos, unconfusedly, and atreptos, unchangeably. So the two natures exist unconfusedly and unchangeably. 
And they're not morphing back and forth. They're not being confused with one another in such a way that there's only divinity or only humanity or neither, some mixture of the two, which is neither. Um, that's, uh, so again, we're just seeing the, the words that became very helpful in clarifying what is the orthodox position over and against Eutyches in this case. All right, Scare continues. Chalcedonian Christology was given confessional status in the Athanasian Creed, which took shape between the 5th and 6th centuries. Not written by Athanasius, of course, but named after him. The Athanasian Creed, we're getting ready to say this next Sunday, Holy Trinity Sunday. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, I sure hope I put that in the bulletin. <laughs> Either way, we'll be saying it this Sunday. So the Athanasian Creed, absolutely wonderful, because the first half is proper understanding of the Trinity, and the second half, uh, proper understanding of Christ. All right. Um, yeah, so the Athanasian Creed, Scare Continues, which took shape between the 5th and 6th centuries against Eutychianism, the Athanasian Creed confessed that Jesus is both perfect God and perfect man. And this happens not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. All right, so you remember those lines from the Athanasian Creed, perfect God and perfect man, and then also not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. So that against Eutyches. In response to Nestorius, it confessed that, quote, although Jesus is God and man, he is not two Christs, but one Christ. So, the Athanasian Creed confessing against both Nestorianism and Eutychianism. Fantastic creed. And in the Book of Concord, of course, included with the ancient symbols, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed is the bedrock and foundation of our Lutheran confession. Uh, you know, those symbols that come immediately after the Scripture and reflect perfectly what the Scriptures themselves teach, we also confess them. <clears throat> All right, um, that gives us opportunity to just jump over to page 15 and look down um, on the fourth line from the very top of 15, um, the monophysite controversy of Scare writes, soon developed after the condemnation of Eutyches. So you can see what's happening here. Arianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, Monophysitism. Uh, the Monophysite controversy soon developed after the condemnation of Eutyches at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Monophysite teaching developed out of the heresy of Eutyches but was not identical to it. Whereas Eutyches taught that in the union of Christ's divine and human natures, there resulted only one nature, the divine nature, the Monophysites held that the two natures in Christ were so united that even though the one Christ was human and divine, his two natures had become, by virtue of their union, only one nature. All right, so this is kind of where you mix it together and get the Hercules-type phenomenon. It's a monophysitism really is a is underneath the category, the broader category of Eutychianism. It's a subset of Eutychianism where the two natures become one nature. All right. Dropping down to the next paragraph. 
Scare writes, the old Christological heresies were revived during the Reformation in debate between Lutherans and Reformed. And we'll have more on this to be sure. Um, just hit a couple comments here in this chapter, but we'll have more opportunity to get into this more deeply. But yes, it was against the Reformed. The, um, the Lutherans, Scare continues, insisted that a unity between the divine and human natures in Christ resulted in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Reformed stressed the individuality of the two natures in Christ to such an extent that they almost asserted that there were in Christ two personalities. The philosophical undergirding of Reformed Christology, ah, yeah, um, when you have a philosophical undergirding as opposed to a biblical undergirding, you, you might have a problem. The philosophical undergirding of Reformed Christology was their principle that the finite is not capable of the infinite. Finitum non est capax infinity. You've probably heard this before. If you have any uh, Reformed friends you talk theology with, the finite is not capable of the infinite. Um, of course, that's a big problem because if the finite isn't capable of the infinite, then in what sense can you have an incarnation? You know, that in what sense can you have in him the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily, right? If the body isn't capable, if the body is by definition finite and then is by definition incapable of the infinite and God is, God in Christ Jesus is by definition the Logos is by definition infinite, then you can't have the Logos, who is by definition infinite, becoming flesh, because flesh is by definition finite. So you got a real problem there in Calvinism, um, one of more than a few. Uh, this principle surfaced prominently in the Reformed denial of the actual bodily pr presence of Christ in the sacrament of the altar. So generally speaking, how this went is Christ, the Reformed would say Christ's body cannot be on earth on all these different uh, altars at one time. His body is locked up at the right hand of God in heaven. And to say that his body can be all these different places is to destroy the nature of the, of the true humanity because a true human body can't be all these places at once, so you Lutherans are denying that he is true man. That's the charge. Um, well, the answer to that, the response to that, gets a little technical and, and multifaceted because it's like, how many different ways can we possibly attack this? Uh, more than one. But the bottom line is, is simply this. Because of the Incarnation, because the finite uh, does in fact, uh, is in fact assumed by the infinite, that finite can do whatever the infinite wants to do. The human nature can do whatever the, the divine nature wants to do in and through it um, without, without destroying it, um, without violating it. Uh, Christ's body can be wherever he says his body is. Furthermore, we see then the childish view of Christ being locked up at the right hand of God in heaven, incapable of being anywhere else. And this is precisely then where the Nestorian charge comes in. Because if Christ's body and the bodily Christ is up in heaven, in what sense is he present down here? And the Reformed will say he is only present spiritually. 
great. Now you've got a spiritual Christ on earth and an embodied Christ in heaven. You now have two Christs. And so uh, we certainly exonerate ourselves from the charge of Eutychianism and the charge of Nestorianism on this count sticks. So again, all of this has to do very plainly with the denial of the words of Jesus, this is my body, this, namely this bread here on earth is my body. Um, that's, since that's rejected by the, uh, by the Reformed, they then go into all of these Christological convolutions. But again, we'll get into this, I think, in more detail as we progress through the text. So, uh, as Scare has said, this principle surfaced prominently in the Reformed denial of the actual bodily presence of Christ in the sacrament of the altar, but the controversy over the Lord's Supper was only the reflection and result of a deeper Christological disagreement. The differences between Lutherans and Reformed first surfaced in Luther's debate with Zwingli. All right, we'll have more time to get into that later. So, um, just moving on, we can, we're, again, we're tracking with the history. We've made it up to the Reformation. The Christological controversies reemerged between Lutherans and the Reformed at the time of the Reformation. Now we're, we'll flip over to um, page 16, and we'll see the transition then from the Reformation to the Enlightenment, and we're bringing ourselves ever more present tense. On page 16, at the beginning of the the full paragraph there, the start of the paragraph, you'll see Scare write the controversy over the relationship of Christ's divine and human natures has now been overshadowed by the question of Christ's historicity. Okay, so that's what I was mentioning just a moment ago. Um, you know, this this sort of ongoing battle between uh, Nestorius and Eutyches and the Ortho on one hand. Yeah, Nestorius on the right and Eutyches on the left and in the middle, the Orthodox Church trying to confess the truth. Uh, now the ballgame changes and that, those are no longer the primary debates being had. The primary debate, the primary heresy is this question of Christ's historicity. All right, to go very quickly over page 17 and just hit the hit the names here. He mentions Gottfried Lessing, an 18th century guy, and then says, Lessing asserted that no historical truth can be demonstrated and therefore cannot be used to demonstrate anything else. This view is known as Lessing's ditch, etc. So, uh, Lessing paves the way, you know, you can see what you can really frankly see, it was kind of astonishing to me that it comes this early. Um, but you can really see this, the, the seedbed of post-modernity in, a, in Lessing's ditch here, where basically you can't ever know history. History is unknowable. It's all completely subjective. And, and so then you end up in this, this idea that um, we can't, you know, we're going to end up rejecting or denying um, either, the, either that Jesus did exist or, or even if we acknowledge that he existed, we just can't know for certain anything about him. That's where Lessing leaves you. As Scare writes just a few lines later, when applied to the study of New Testament theology, Lessing's ditch makes the person of the historical Jesus irretrievable. All right, then he next uh, introduces David Frederick Strauss, and here we get the perspective. Uh, he's a 19th century guy. The Gospels were myths devised by the early Christian community. 
And this, by the way, remains so popular, uh, but not only in academia, I mean in, in churches uh, all, all around the world, this is, at least in the West, this is a very popular view that the scriptures, whether or not they're inspired by God or what that even means, that the scriptures themselves are products of the community. So creative writings that have been redacted and added to and take parts taken away and other parts added in and other parts clarified by the community as time has progressed. In other words, we've sort of like believed this thing about Jesus and then conformed the scriptures around that belief. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird way of thinking. But anyway, very popular, very wrong, uh, David Frederick Strauss. Uh, next, he introduces Albert Schweitzer just in passing. And Schweitzer wrote The Quest for the Historical Jesus. <laughs> and then at the end of his historical quest, a scare remarks, all one could truly say about Jesus was that he, now quoting Schweitzer, he comes to us as one unknown without a name. <laughs> so much for the quest for the historical Jesus. That's it. When you actually go looking for the Jesus of history that you, after applying all of your skeptical, uh, rational, pseudoscientific reason, you're left with a Jesus who is utterly unknown and has no name. All right. Real helpful approach to theology. So you can see here in these three figures, Lessing, Strauss, and Schweitzer, the dead end of Christology um, and where we find ourselves largely today. You know, when you look every single Easter, every single Christmas, <clears throat> there's some special put out by the History Channel or National Geographic or whatever organization, you know, uncovering the real, true, historic Jesus. It's, and it's all based on the work of these three guys. Once you, once you kind of know these patterns, you go, oh, that's where they got it. It's still around in the 21st century. All right, so that gives us then the, the general status of things. Um, let's look over on page 18. And if we look at the bottom paragraph on 18... Scare writes, a common argument against the historicity of Jesus is that the New Testament is the only witness to him which historians have. This argument is open to criticism because it overlooks the fact that the New Testament is not simply one book, but rather a collection of manuscripts written by at least nine or ten persons from a variety of places as separated from one another as Jerusalem and Rome over a period of time, encompassing some 50 years. The majority of critical scholars and other opponents of Orthodox Christianity recognize that because the New Testament writings are so diverse in style and origin, there is little evidence of collaboration among the various writers. So, this is the judo flip of all of this liberal, historical, critical methodology that is, you know, dissected the scriptures, found them to be uh, mythological in so many places, redacted and edited by the Christ Christian community throughout time, manipulated in all these ways. 
even still, what one of their favorite things to point out are the are the supposed contradictions, you know, between one gospel and another, or one writing and another, or Paul and Jesus, or whatever it may be. Um, but what that actually shows is that there's no evidence of uh, collaboration. That there that there is no. I mean, it's self-defeating. It, it, there is. It contradicts their own position. There is no sense in which the church ever sat down and said, let's harmonize all of these uh, gospels. Let's harmonize all of these scriptures. Let's edit out the parts that uh, seem to contradict and smooth those over. There is no evidence of that. And so here, here's just you know, one of these kind of ironies about the text where, again, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And the weakness of these supposed contradictions, or you know, you know, that weakness, God's strength is shown in that there's no collaboration, that there's no, uh, there's nothing artificial going on. But as Scarce says, you know, when you even just look at the New Testament, it's written over a 50-year span by what did he say, eight to nine different persons or something like this. Um, that's that that gives quite a great deal of strength then. Uh, to the evidence we have regarding the historicity of Jesus. All right, so I simply point that out because this is, um, you know, part of part of where Scare wants to conclude the chapter that that these um, that these documents of the New Testament, um, in particular, but of course then by extension the Old Testament, that these do in fact fi- give a perfectly viable foundation for understanding the historical existence of Christ. And then receiving that revelation, which is from above, that this Christ is, that this Jesus is in fact the Christ, is in fact the true Son of God. So he is indeed true God, true man, and one person. Let's just continue with Scare at the bottom of 18. The New Testament, which is the chief but not the only witness to the historicity of Jesus, evolved as the collection of documents which the church recognized as unified in theme and purpose. The church recognized these individual writings as authoritative because of their apostolic origin. You know, and a strength to keep in mind here too is though many of the New Testament documents or like I'm thinking of a, you know, a couple of the Gospels um, like Luke and Mark, um, Hebrews, these kinds of books, they're, um, they're not written by apostles, but they do have apostolic origin. I mean, these people are with the apostles, and these documents are written while the apostles are living and uh, can certainly affirm these documents. So, again, that's, what's, that's all what's included there in their apostolic origin, as Scare writes it. He continues, The number of historical witnesses to the person of Jesus of Nazareth is unequaled in comparison to any other person in history, including the pharaohs, Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar. So this is really a stunning and remarkable point, and uh, one that should give us great confidence, and that is that the historical witness that attest to Jesus of Nazareth are greater than the historical witnesses that attest to any other figure in history. So to deny or dismiss uh, the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, if you're going to be consistent, rational, scientific, whatever you want to call it, you're going to have to reject the historicity of anyone from the past. Anyone. And similarly then comes the content. 
what it, what it is that we think we know about the pharaohs or what it is we think we know about Alexander the Great or, or Julius Caesar, that all comes from writings that are far less attested than the writings we have that attest to Jesus Christ. So there's a, a content and a substance, a substance argument to be made here as well. Um, that that if you're going to dis, if you're going to then say fine, I don't want to get rid of all of history, so I'll agree that there's a historical person named Jesus. We just don't know anything about him. Well, that's not how that works. Then you must also then say you don't know anything about Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, or the Pharaohs. Again, empty the history books of their content. Or if you're going to believe those historical records and take them seriously, you need to believe and take seriously the historical records that attest to Jesus of Nazareth. So you can't have it both ways. You either have you either have Jesus and history, or no Jesus and no history. All right. So just to wrap this thought up um, from Scare, he says right after, rather than detracting from the historicity of Jesus, the variety of the New Testament's documents serve to support Jesus' historicity. And again, as, as Scare will, will show and demonstrate, there's, there's no problem, you know, with beginning as, with the scriptures as just human documents, as just penned by human beings, and just starting there. Um, before, you, before asserting that they're the Word of God or anything else, if you just start there, fine. To what do they attest, and how much evidence do they offer? And if you're going to be consistent in rejecting them, what else will you have to reject? This is a fine and very valid way to introduce oneself to Christianity, to the historicity and veracity of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, it may be more honest to say that we all start with our presuppositions, and our presuppositions really are the, the definition of faith. It is what you believe in as your presupposition. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? You're going to enter the scriptures in one way. Do you believe that he is not? You're going to enter the scriptures in another. All right, page 20. We'll wrap up this thought from Scare, and maybe that'll be a sufficient place to break just a few minutes early today, and we'll get into the next chapter uh, next week. Scare writes in summary at the top of page 20. As the early church struggled to defend its theology against the attack on the relationship of the divine and human natures of Christ, so the church of today struggles to defend her theology against those who would rob her of her confidence in the historicity of Jesus Christ. So, in many respects, then, you can see the, the shift that takes place after the Enlightenment. Prior to the Enlightenment, it's chiefly about the relationship between the divine and human natures. After the Enlightenment, it's chiefly about the historicity of Jesus Christ. Of course, you know, Satan's not going to let any error die, and so he keeps all the old ancient heresies uh, alive and well in one form or another. But there is nonetheless this, this shift that takes place. That we're still in, I, I, think, I think positively at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, you have major uh, theologians and figures within the church. And here I don't mean just Lutheranism. I mean also Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy who have recognized this problem, uh, recognized where historical, critical, academic, scholastic methodology, particularly exegesis, has led us, and it's led us into to an ungodly and unwholesome and 
theologically terrible position. Um, and so, so there's, there's a strong effort now in the late 20th, early 21st century to reject that methodology. Yeah, not to reject just simply the conclusions, but to reject the methodology and to replace that methodology with something that we find um, back in the early church fathers, um, a methodology and, and reading of scripture that is actually fruitful and beneficial and, and, and expands our knowledge and understanding of God rather than diminishes it. So that's the, that's the project in which we find ourselves uh, even today in our own time. All right, next week we will uh, go into chapter 3. Let me take a brief look at how long chapter 3 is. Um, we stand a chance of getting through it if I jump around a bit, and I may if, if things are uh, a, a bit redundant. It's been some time since I've looked at this text. So let's go ahead and, and say if you're reading along at home and, and you want to prepare, let's, let's just prepare all of chapter 3 for next week. The Lord be with you.